Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullah. Welcome to the Al-Kisar Foundation podcast. I'm Ali and I'm going to be your host. Today I'm going to be having a hallway conversation with a friend of mine, Shayan Durudi, about education. We're not going to talk about any particular content or curriculum, but instead focus on the broader topic of education through the lens of technology. Shayan is an assistant professor at the University of California, Irvine School of Education, with a courtesy appointment at the development of informatics. He does research at the intersection of educational data science, educational technology, and learning sciences. He received his bachelor's in computer science from Caltech and his master's and PhD in computer science from Carnegie Mellon University. Welcome, Brother Shayan. So good to have you here. Thank you. Assalamu alaikum. Alaikum alaikum. I want to take us back to 2011, 2012, when you saw this explosion of MOOCs. I think that was around the time yeah. when MOOCs really exploded. Um, what were your thoughts uh, in those days and where are MOOCs now? And, and like, what exactly happened in, in, in that time? And, and I, I, if I remember correctly, back in the days, everybody thought that MOOCs is going to take over the world. And we thought that universities would completely shut down and that there's no uh, need to have uh, in-person universities anymore. But the reality couldn't be further from the truth. What happened there? So I, I wouldn't say everybody thought that, but I think there was definitely a lot of media hype and a lot of hype promoting that idea. Um, and so a lot of a lot of people were, were probably influenced by that. I'm sure at the time I was also on the like, I would say on the optimistic side about MOOCs. I, I, I don't think I thought that it was going to replace, um, you know, traditional institutions. You know, some people did. Um, some of the advocates for MOOCs, I think, claim, claim that but, um, or, or predicted that. But, um, but I think probably there was also a lot of critics. And at the time, I don't think I was necessarily reading like the, the critics perspectives or like, you know, people from uh, education researchers, what they were thinking. Um, but, but I'm sure there were the f- a fair share of critics um, at the same time. Uh, but yeah, I think so. A lot of the hype was just, you know, we now, it, it's funny because the technology was not drastically different than what could have been done earlier. It's not like it's some new, it's not like they were using some like new technology like AI or something that came out. They were just basically delivering, you know, again, these recorded, uh, you know, lectures in, uh, to, you know, online, right? So they're basically putting lectures online. And, and, and before that, before MOOCs, there was things like MIT had open courseware where they put up some of their courses online. I'm sure there were a lot of things like that where people were putting up, uh, in, you know, recorded lectures online. The main difference, I think, with MOOCs was that, or one of the main differences was that the, those were recorded lectures like in a lecture hall where the instructor was writing on a chalkboard or a whiteboard. It was not designed as an online course. And then, and, and then also, I think they were typically not really classes. They put up their lectures, they put up their assignments, but it's like, hey, do whatever you want with, with it, mm-hmm. right? There's no like assignments, there's no deadlines, things like that, um, that you have to do. So it didn't have a course structure. But again, the technology could have allowed for that. It's just people weren't doing that, right? So, so with MOOCs, it was yeah. just people realized, oh, why don't we make courses specifically designed for an online audience? And these are instructors at top universities, uh, like Stanford, right, who started it. And, and so um, I think why I got a lot of hype was, a, tons of people signed up, which was not expect, they weren't expecting. So I think the, one, one of the first courses, uh, which was what became Udacity, they had an artificial intelligence course. They had, I think, if I remember correctly, maybe like over 100,000, maybe almost 200,000 people from across the globe signed up. So it's like, okay, okay, this is attracting a lot more people than would take this course at Stanford. And it's people across the globe. So I think one of the, one of the like really promising things that they saw in it was that uh, I think Sebastian Theron from Udacity, he said that it was like democratizing education. Now mm-hmm. everyone has access to high quality education, right? In reality, that hype didn't live up. So, so what, what people realized later on is that, yeah, a ton of people sign up, much fewer, you know, smaller numbers actually complete the course. And later research showed that 
the people signing up are often people who have master's degrees, maybe even higher master's or PhD degrees. Yeah, <laughs> you know, they tend to be from uh, more developed countries. That, so, right. so it's not like, a, it's not like these people who never had access to an education or the, the ones that are mostly signing up for this, right? There, there are some people like that, but it's, it's a lot of times people who want to supplement their, their existing, like, you know, Ivy League education with a new course. Right. That they didn't. The initial launch of MOOCs reminds me of the internet in the 1990s, yeah. where, uh, for example, um, New York Times would literally uh, upload pictures of uh, the uh, newspapers onto their website. And so when people go to the website, they would literally just see a picture of the New York Times articles. And mm -hmm. that wasn't very effective, but it didn't mean that, uh, you know, online was, uh, was not yeah. effective, right? So it, later on, when they started visualizing all this text and when they started putting uh, the text in digital format in, in a nice uh, user-friendly format, that's when things started to kick off. Okay, all this hype was there, and then what happened, right? So yeah, they, yeah. And they're, 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 you know, the set of courses growing, like if, if you look at it and from one perspective, it's like they're growing, right? Because they have more courses, they have more, you know, but the, the hype is completely like sort of died down, right? Nobody, like I actually asked my students, I teach a class on education technology. I asked my students at some point, like in the class, like how many of you know what MOOCs are? Very, actually, like, I think very few of them know. I've like <laughs> even heard of these things. So, so it's like, there isn't much hype, um, even among university students, they don't really know uh, what they're about. Um, so, I think there's a few reasons this happened. Again, they weren't offering something drastically innovative necessarily. It's just that people hadn't really done that before. On, on the other hand, another thing I mentioned is that a lot of the people taking these are people who already have degrees. It's not like, it's not like they're reaching out to the people who necessarily don't have access to a good education um, as much. And then, um, and with Udacity, it's, it's actually reaching out to people who, who wanna get like jobs in Silicon Valley. It's not like their model has changed quite a bit. Um, people with uh, deep pockets typically. Yeah, <laughs> or people will want them at least. <laughs> but I think another thing is that a lot of the hype around this is, is what I'm using. This is one of my, one of the areas I focus on now is that a lot of these new ventures, these like MOOCs and, you know, you know we can think about other technologies before that uh, in, in education, they, they're, not, they're, they're not aware of the, the, the history of educational technology and how similar things, people propose these kind of things and they say, oh, this is going to drastically change education. And then it, it has some impact, it has some hype, but after a few years, people forget about the technology. And that's happening right now with MOOCs. So I think this is just a trend that generally happens. Education is very slow to change. It's not, it's not a system that just drastically changes overnight because you can do something fun online. Uh, so we have to be sort of authentic to that. And, and there's still room for improvement. There's still room, you know, again, Udacity and Coursera still exist. They still target, they still reach out to some students, right? Or some uh, people across the globe. But we just have to realize when we come up with a new idea in, in education, we, we have to realize that it's probably not going to change the system drastically. And we should think about what are ways that we can actually make it have more of an impact. So I, th I think that's something that I've come to realize over the past few years. This is a great time to transition to, to talking about your thesis and what you're working on right now. Let's talk about your, your thesis. I mean, I don't know if my thesis is that interesting, but I guess I'll talk about, um, uh, I guess, sort of what I focused on, uh, what, what I was doing research on, which, um, the general area of it. So, so I was one, one, one of the big part, uh, components of my thesis was on trying to, so actually, I guess this leads to one, an, early, an earlier technology um, that people saw a lot of promise in, which is intelligent tutoring systems. These are platforms that um, were developed, I think often for, for K through 12, that are basically like some software that students can basically learn a subject in. And usually it's, usually it's for topics, not always, but like for topics, let's say like math or STEM, STEM I know, science and uh, math topics, where you can sort of give prob students pro uh, step-by-step -step problems 
lead them through solving the problems, helping them uh, learn. So math is a great example because, you know, there's a very procedural way to do, um, you know, uh, arithmetic, algebra, et cetera, or geometry. So basically walk students like step by step through, let's say it's trying to teach algebra, right? Some algebra, like solving linear equations, it mm -hmm. walks them through that process, teaches them the steps. If they get something wrong, you know, they can get a hint or something, or they get some feedback for why they got it wrong and to try again. And then, so it's not just like, okay, you solve problems, you write down the answer and you get graded, right? Which is what mm -hmm. a lot of times homework is like, right? Where you mm -hmm. don't get, so some of the limitations with existing homework is you're not getting immediate feedback. You're not getting, um, you, you have to wait till your instructor grades and maybe they grade it or your teacher, maybe they grade it two days later or a week later. So that by then it's not very useful to you. Um, uh, and you don't get feedback on a given step, right? So maybe I write my answer and it's wrong. But I don't know why it was wrong, right? It might be wrong because the second step, I think, because I, I forgot a negative sign somewhere or in the middle of it, right? So, so this system can give you feedback right when you need it. And some of the systems use, like, um, basically they know how to solve the problem. So they, they can tell if the student's doing something incorrectly and can sort of guide the student back to the right way of solving the problem. So there's a lot of, um, you know, thought that went into this. The, these people started developing the systems in the 70s and 80s, actually. They're not very new, but they're, they're quite, uh, yeah. So, so again, this... 70s and, and 80s that's yeah that's so incredible. 80s really is when it started taking off mm -hmm. um i think actually i mean so computer assisted instruction i mean i think it's interesting for people to know it, computer assisted instruction started in the 60s like before people even had computers right so the first systems actually um so i, I for my thesis actually i looked into this uh this history a little bit the stanford actually had they had a computer one of the first um they actually developed i think the first sort of uh, time sharing with um, like graphical displays. So they actually had a com like a computer at Stanford that connected to displays, like you could say monitors basically in schools, in, in, in some schools in the, in the Bay Area. And they um, would basically, multiple students can, can work at the same time using the same computer. So that was a very novel idea at the time. This, this idea of time sharing was very new. It was like, mm. I think, so I think in like, the, maybe there was the, like the mid sixties or something that they, they started doing this. Um, so they had students, students in classrooms working and then, and then their answers would go, you know, to the computer at Stanford, it would, it would crunch some numbers or something and then, and then decide what, uh, what to do, you know, uh, what to give the student next and things like that. Um, so this was actually, this idea was being explored in the sixties actually. Um, so actually my, so, so what I was interested in is working with some, like one of these tutoring systems, I wanted to see if we could make it more adaptive in terms of what problem it would give students next. So we were specifically working on a tutoring system that would teach fractions had a bunch of problems related to fractions, different topics and um, fractions. And we want to see, okay, for example, if the students, uh, if the student repeatedly gets some kind of problem wrong, let's say they're trying to add fractions, they can't do it. Well, maybe we say, okay, well, why are they getting it wrong? Maybe they have to go back to this other skill that maybe they didn't really learn, right? Maybe they have to, maybe they don't even understand what a fraction is. We should make sure they understand what a fraction is first. So we might have to jump back a couple topics, for example. Or let's say a student's getting something right. Well, maybe we can give them a harder problem, give them some harder numbers. Oh they're having a hard time and we go back to an easier problem, right? So there's many ways in which you can imagine and, and a good teacher, how does a good teacher or a good tutor, let's say. So these, these systems are called intelligent tutoring systems because it's a one-on-one -on -one system. Mm -hmm. So what does a good tutor do, right? If they, if, if they give you a good problem, uh, sorry, if they give you a problem and you're struggling with it, they will try to diagnose, well, why are you struggling with it? How can I better explain this to you? Maybe I'll give you another kind of problem that you can see it from a different way. Maybe I have to give you an explanation. So that's the ideal of these tutoring systems, sort of, to, to be able to do that on the fly. And I was trying to do this, uh, we're trying to use like machine learning. We had a bunch of data collected from students in, in elementary schools working on our tutoring system. Uh, we want to see if we can use this data to sort of like learn basically like a model of how students are learning and how to sort of adapt instruction to the students. 
Um, and I think there's a lot of hype around this idea right now. A lot of people, are, you know, some companies, um, I don't know if you heard of, there's a company called Newton, K-N-E-W-T-O-N. No, a few I years back. Um, and they basically claimed they were doing, you know, this kind of adapt, adaptive problem selection for, for students. And, and, and they had a lot of hype as well. And there was like an NPR uh, article about them that they, they, the CEO claimed they had like a, a robot tutor in the sky. And <laughs> I don't even know what that means. It's not in the, what does it mean that it's in the sky? But well, they basically, they, that they, phrase just say in the cloud, probably. No, I think you're just making stuff up to make oh. it sound cool. Uh, I don't, I don't <laughs> think you've done anything concrete with that. Um, but, but in any, in any case, it, it ended up like the, the, didn't, the company didn't uh, really get, they had a lot of marketing, but n not as much, mm. I think, substance, I guess, to back it up. It seemed. <laughs> and they, they didn't um, get much traction. They got acquired by some other company that basically it seems like they turned Newton into another product. Like they actually changed the product even. Um, oh. So in any case, so there's a lot of, you know, companies like this will pop up. Sometimes they'll stick around for a few years. Sometimes, you know, they'll die out, but um, they, and a lot, a lot. So whenever I see someone claiming that they can do a good job of this, I'm skeptical because a lot of my thesis was trying to do this and I actually did a literature review of, of all the prior attempts that people have tried to do this. I found some have been more successful than others. And this is actually what led me to realize that people are actually doing this in the sixties. They were actually, they were actually using data to determine like, uh, it was in a simpler task for like sequencing, like vocabulary words. Let's say you want to teach someone Spanish or, uh, or Arabic, and, and then you want to give them like uh, uh, words to practice. What is the best word to give the student next, right? So it's like a flashcard task, right? If I, if I get this word wrong, I, I need to see it more often than if I get it right, right? You say that they've been doing this for, from the 60s. Why is it still, not, why is it still so difficult to, to build today? Yeah, so I think there's a few reasons. One is, well, as I mentioned, people forget. So I think, and in the 60s and 70s they were sort of working on this problem then it basically they stopped like that community that was working on this stopped working on this problem and it came back up in the, maybe like the 90s so and, and basically so people had forgotten it wasn't like a continuous you know effort mm. sort of dating back to the 60s um so basically people forgot what people were doing back then i think in a sense on the other hand so for that particular problem of like sequencing vocabulary words i think that's a fairly simple problem you can do a pretty good job of it but for more complicated problems like sequencing math problems, it's very difficult because math is a very complex subject. Different students might learn things differently. Different students have different prior knowledge, right? That they're coming, they might have different, um, you know, misunderstandings that they're bringing to the table. Um, uh, the data won't capture everything. Like a student might, might just, you know, get distracted. They might leave the room. We think they're spending a lot of time in the problem. They're just working on something else, right? So like there's noise in the data. All of these things lead it to ma making it a very complicated problem to actually solve. So I think it's just what I've come to realize is that if you want to solve this problem in a very generic way, I've tried trying to like, you know, give students like a good problem, uh, the best problem next, it's just very difficult because we don't have the right kind of data to make that decision. And we don't have enough of that data. Now we talk about big data nowadays. So even if we have data from like a th thousand students, like the complexity of the problem just makes it so it's, it's not like, it's not a very easy problem to solve. Um, Plus, like, there's so many different subjects that you, you, can't, you can't really narrow it down to just... One yeah, so each subject might need, limited. like, a specific approach. You might need to model. So, you, so one, one way of doing this, for example, you model the knowledge, like, how are different pieces of knowledge related to one another? And mm -hmm. that's very subject-specific. And once you have that model, um, you don't necessarily... So one, one idea is you can use data to fit that model, but a good, a good, like, teacher might be able to construct that themselves, right? You don't necessarily need data to, 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 to like, discover that model. So if a teacher could give that model to the computer and then, and then beyond that, using data to refine it, it's not clear. Like you might need a lot of data before it starts making decisions. Um, but there's actually one company that does a, 
I'll mention there's it's, it's local here in, in Irvine. It's Alex, A-L-E-K-S. And they, they do a really good job, I think. In, so they have this basically huge graph of math, um, the, how different concepts in math are related to one another. And what they do a good job of is they give us students like a, an, an assessment at the beginning, a test, to basically figure out where in the graph these students are. So what do the students, what does this individual student know? What do they not know? Um, and, and they do this, by they, they use some like AI to basically figure out, to, to try to quickly figure that out. So they don't just give students like a hundred problems. They'll give them a problem. If they can't solve this problem, they say, okay, well maybe we have to test them on this, this problem here. And then if they solve this, well, then, then we know that they might know these things. So then we give them this one. So, so basically like give up, give a small number of problems to quickly figure out what a student knows and what they don't know. And then they it's kind of similar to uh, the Khan Academy, but with AI. Yeah. In a sense, you can think mm -hmm. about it. Yeah. Khan Academy has that graph, but they don't, right. Khan Academy doesn't like, they might be doing now, but they, they don't, I don't think they were assessing students what they, mm -hmm. what they know. It's up to the student to decide I want to practice this or not. Um, so, so this platform just does a great job of like figuring out what the student needs practice on. And then it's up to the student, like what order they want to do things in. It doesn't try to order those things, but it, at least it gives them a good starting point. Right. So mm -hmm. I think that that's a problem that we can, I think, uh, use AI to like sort of do a good job of. But the, the thing that I was trying to do for my thesis, I think, I think that we might be able to find some particular areas like vocabulary, for example, sequencing vocabulary words, where we can, you know, use data to, to sort of uh, give the right word next. Um, but for very open-ended domains, and, and math isn't even open-ended. Once you get to like things like, like creative writing or like things like that, it's like, what, how do we even <laughs> yeah. develop a system that could teach that effectively or like sequence? I think, I think people coming from a more technical perspective are often interested in what are the, the most uh, state-of-the-art techniques that we can apply, like deep learning or whatever, you know, right. blockchain. And we're going to use this to like revolutionize education. But in reality, you should be coming at it from what are the low-hanging fruits in education? What are the areas that need improvement? And how, what, what are the easiest ways we can improve them? So that's, I think that's a great question. And I think in many cases, those things aren't necessarily, they don't necessarily need a technical solution. So then mm -hmm. the question is, well, if we want to see, okay, well, how can AI contribute or, you know, other areas of computer science? Well, um, we should first find good educational problems and then see, is AI even the solution to this problem? If it's not, let's not try to, let's not try to pretend it is and, and waste our time with that, right? So I think, for example, one, just generally speaking, I think um, we should, I, and this is what part of my thesis was trying to combine AI and, and you know, uh, say machine learning and things like that with um, what we know about education, what we know about psychology, right? So, so um, I just want to give a quick go back to the idea of like sequencing vocabulary words. One of the reasons people are successful at that task is that we have a decent, we have, we can have decent models for, for like how people forget things and forgetting is very important for this, right? When, you, when you're trying to learn, like learn words, like SAT words or something, the, the thing is like, you might see a word, but the problem is you'll forget it like a, a minute later. Right? So you want to basically quickly keep giving students words that they might forget. So we have decent models for how students forget. And that's coming from like psychology, right? Now we can refine those models with data. Right. So it's not that we're purely saying, okay, we're going to use like a, and people, have, people are actually trying to do this now. We're going to use like a neural network or some machine learning model to try to figure this out completely from data. We can actually use what researchers have already figured out in psychology and education related areas, and then combine that with techniques from AI to sort of refine that further. I mentioned the same thing with the knowledge graph, right? Let's start with the knowledge graph. And this is what that company, what Alex says, they start with the knowledge graph that, you know, educators and people experts have developed. And then they refine that with data. You don't, you don't just try to do it from scratch, but any area where we see, okay, there's an educational need. We have some ideas of how to do this, you know, uh, some idea, like we can look at the literature and psychology or education related areas to see, 
How can we tackle this problem? And then we can see how we can supplement it with techniques from artificial intelligence. Mm. Um, another area, for example, that I recently some of my colleagues work on is, is trying to nudge students. So I, I talked about this problem of, in, especially right now with online courses, some students just fall behind. They have a hard time keep, keeping, you know, staying on top of everything. So uh, what if you could just nudge students when they to tell them, oh, by the way, remember you have an assignment due in a couple of days. Uh, and, and, but so, so one idea that people have been exploring is just to do that, you know, just send nudges like every time they have an assignment due or something like that. Or, or if a student didn't turn something in, send a nudge. I just saw an article this morning that somebody developed a, like a startup around this. who's an educator who wanted to solve this problem. And just, he was initially just sending text messages to like parents to say, oh, your student didn't turn these in or was absent these days, right? So you could just do that. Um, you can either send them to parents, you can send them to students. Um, but then, uh, and then, and then they ended up making it automated. But I think there's room for, what if we can use machine learning to try to automatically figure out when should we send a student a nudge? Because if you send too many, they'll probably just get ignored, right? Mm -hmm. Like, you, you know, when you, when you get too many emails from someone or like from some organization or too many like notifications, you probably just start not paying attention to it. Right. Uh, like every well, that, week. that problem is already being worked on by all these other tech companies that are for, like social media tech companies, right? Yeah, sort of like personalized um, emails, uh, notifications, I think, and whatnot. Yeah, I think, but I think in education, there's a particular like. Um, so again, we can we can use things that people are already doing in other areas, but I think that sometimes it needs to be tailored to to this context, like the educational context, because um, because the needs are sort of different, right? Um, so similar with the recommendation, right? Like recommendation, the recommendation problem, like Netflix, like recommending movies right. or other things. We do a good job of in other areas, but in education, like recommending what problems to solve next. Because I mean, one way to think about it is this, that if you really want to know like, okay, like what should I do for the student next? You ideally need a good model of how the student learns. And if you have a good model of how the mind works and how learning works, then you basically have a general artificial intelligence thing. If you can, if you can simulate a student's mind, then you basically have like a general, or uh, 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 artificial general intelligence, which we're nowhere near having, right? So in a sense, like learning is a particularly complicated area to, to sort of, human learning is a particularly complicated area to study with machine learning because it's, you know, very complex. Uh, it's, it's basically, you know, intelligence and learning itself that we're trying to study. Whereas in other areas like be human behaviors and things like that, consumer behaviors, uh, you know, they're just relatively sim uh, simpler in a sense. What are other things that you're seeing in this field that are very exciting to you right now? I think other areas that are interesting and, and um, how to use tools to support like collaboration and things like that. Um, because a lot of the things I was talking about is sort of like one-on-one, -on -one, right? Like a tutoring mm -hmm. system that works one-on-one -on -one with the student. Um, and there's been a lot of work as well. And I'm not as familiar with this work, but like computer supported collaborative learning. Where, where the computer is like sort of mediating collaboration between students. And that could be done in a physical space where two students are working together on a computer or especially nowadays, well, how do we support students working together in, in a remote context where the students might be in different places, but the, you know, they, um, uh, and I think there's, there's tools um, like for, for facilitating discussions among students uh, and things like that. So, so there's a lot of work I think that can be done with natural language processing where it's like you, you have student, like natural text that students are typing. How do we like um, sort of understand what students are saying with this and sort of, for example, facilitate the discussions that they're having with one another, see if, if, they're, if their statements that they're typing, right, uh, are reflecting an ad, like an accurate understanding of whatever we're trying to teach and things like that. Um, I, this is not an area I work in though, so I, I can't mm -hmm. speak too much to it. Um, sure. I think for, for me, yeah, the, I, I think just, promising areas would be things that facilitate more like the, the so like the AI playing a more um, supportive role 
than, than trying to replace what teachers do, right? And I think mm -hmm. this has been a tension. A lot of people are skeptical of, of bringing AI into the classroom because it's like, well, you know, we need teachers. We, we don't want to replace teachers. And we have this discussion with other jobs, right? AI is replacing jobs, it's replacing all these jobs. And a lot of people say, you know, in a few years, it's going to replace pretty much every, you know, jobs as we know it. I don't think it's, I don't think it can or should do that with teachers. Um, but, um, and I don't think a lot of the people developing these technologies, they don't claim it does. They do claim that we want this to sort of complement what a teacher does or supplement what a teacher does. But I think generally, um, so one of my colleagues, for example, I, I actually remembering this, I think this is, this is one of the really uh, most fascinating applications of AI that I've seen recently is um, he created these sort of like uh, augmented reality glasses mm -hmm. that where, so again, it's teacher working, it's students working with these tutoring systems, one-on-one -on -one tutoring systems in a classroom setting. So each student has a computer and, the, and they're working on the, the same like platform that's teaching them some you know, math subject at the, at the same time. While the students are working on the tutoring system, the teacher can actually see. Uh, the, so the, it's using like, um, you know, AI to, to determine for each student. Um, for example, this student is struggling right now, or this student is, is like just messing around, right? And it'll tell, the, it'll tell the teacher, it'll give signals to the teacher to like display like a question mark about the student's head. So the teacher will know where to go and, and give individuals attention. So I think something like that's really cool where it's completely supplementing the teacher, uh, sorry, it's completely complementing the teacher's role. It's helping the teacher do a better job of what they're doing. And I think that's a very promising area um, for, for people to look at for how AI can help, not to like replace the role of the teacher, not to do something better than the teacher does, but to sort of help the teacher do their job better. Um, and one way could be like to help, help with grading so the teacher can spend more time on more important things, right? But, but another way is to actually help like in the, in the classroom setting, give the teacher some like real-time information or feedback to help the teacher and uh, give more attention to students that need it. I think education is a really important and exciting place to work. Um, and I think we actually need more people from our community to, I think, um, you know, go into the field, not, not to become, I mean, we need people to be teachers, but I think uh, more so to, to, to also go and study, you know, education and, and technology, educational technology is one aspect of it, which I, I would love to have more people, you know, working in this area in, in our communities, but, but also um, just, um, education more generally, like, you know, you can actually get degrees in education. I don't know if a lot of people are like, you know, familiar with that or like, that's not often times what people consider when they're thinking of a career, right? Even if someone wants to be a teacher, they might not think to, to, to actually study education or even psychology, which could be related in some cases. But um, so, you know, I, I just want to encourage more people to think about that. And because it's an area that, that um, a lot of improvements can be made. Um, and I think there's, there's a lot that can be done in even, for example, like um, uh, improving the the type of education that's being done Islamic schools, for example, and things like that. Um, and, and so I, I think just people going and studying education, also the, the people who might be interested in developing technologies who have, you know, a background in computer science or technical areas to go and learn more about the educational aspect of things um, to, to sort of more thoughtfully guide their approach and hopefully have a bit bigger impact um, in coming right. up with ways to, to improve educational systems. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for uh, joining me. Uh, inshallah, sure. we're going to wrap this up. Bismillah ar-Rahman ar-Rahim wal-asr inna al-insana lafi khusr illa al-lazina amanu wa amilu salihat wa tawasu bil-haqqi wa tawasu bil-sabr sadaqallahu al-hali al-azim